I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hi everyone, Kristen Sinanto-Walker here and we are doing our roundtable discussions with Dr. Paul Meyer this evening. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Nice to be with you, Kristen. Yeah, and we had such a great show last week. I'm sorry I missed it, but I just listened and it was fantastic. And Grant Davis returns, who is a nurse practitioner with the Meyer Clinics. Grant, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Absolutely. I hope these were fun. I hope these are fun experiences for you. Oh, it's awesome. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Great. Well, tonight we're going to talk about something that uh, it's it's a crisis for a good reason. We have some statistics to back that up, and we know that it's a crisis because we hear about it everywhere. And we do we have so many shows we do on the network with first responders and their mental health issues, and they report back to us what they see going on across America as well regarding the opioid crisis. So. Um, thank you both so much for coming on to talk about this and other addictions as well. Yeah, I'll I'll start it off by just uh, uh, quoting a few statistics for for people for our listening family to hear the severity of the problem today. And back in 1980, there were only uh, there were six thousand. That's you know one is too many, but there were six thousand deaths from overdose in 1980. In 1916. I mean, 2016, I'm sorry. In uh, 2016, the New York Times estimated that there were 64,000 people that died of documented overdoses. And about 42,000 out of those 64,000 were from opioids. And it's even higher in 2017. And, uh, you know, we've talked before about the teen suicide rate being 300% higher now than it was 50 years ago. And uh, there's, there's, there have been studies also where they where they ask teenagers, older teenagers, and people in their 20s, "What's your purpose in life?" And uh, back when I was 21, the most common answer was uh, to make a contribution to society or to have a nice family or things like that. And and uh, now the most common things are to enjoy today uh, mm-hmm. or more narcissistic uh, goals. And uh, I've talked to a, a couple of young people this week that uh, Grant and I both work at the um, day program, you know, where we see people that come in seven hours a day, five days a week for three or four weeks and uh, get intensive therapy. And we see a lot of young people that come in there who, when we're asking them what they're so depressed about, one of the main things they bring up is they just don't have meaning in life. And I ask them, how many close friends do you have that you can share anything with? And uh, they say things like, I mean, there are people like that, you know, that they, right. they just don't have that. And two things drive addictions, two main things drive addictions, and that's shame and lack of connectedness. And shame is false guilt and low self-esteem. And and then lack of connectedness uh, is one of the biggies that has caused the uh, increase in, in uh, the people using opioids to, to numb their pain. Right. Um, and, and, and then one, one more thing, and then 
uh, then I'll shut up. <laughs> uh, the, Nobody the ever opioid, wants you to shut up, Paul. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the opioid pain medications cause depression. For one thing, people who are depressed are more likely to abuse opioids to numb their pain. But also, if you took a 100 happy people and made them take uh, those addicting pain pills every day, then uh, an awful lot of them would get depressed um, and suicidal. And a lot of people that die are not trying to commit suicide. They're just uh, accidentally overdosing on it. But because it, they are depressants, they lower the serotonin level in the brain. So the opioid pain medications, as well as heroin and things like that, actually make people more depressed. So Yes, they do. They do. Melanie Van, I think you jumped on too, correct? I sure did. Can you guys hear me okay? Hi, Melanie. Yeah. Hey, Paul. <laughs> Welcome aboard. We have a quattro tonight. So a question for both of you uh, or all of you is there are many people that come to doctor's offices for legitimate pain problems, uh, chronic Mm -hmm. pain, and they are prescribed what they're prescribed in order to handle it. And then they become addicted. And I've read so many things and we've had so many guests that have talked about, you know, that taking, overdoing it with these medications can actually trigger more of a pain response than is actually related to the original injury, that that's part of the addiction process. So um, Yeah, that's called rebound, rebound pain. Yeah. Yeah. If if you took, if you didn't have any pain and you took a pain, uh, an opioid pain medication every day, and you'd start having pain from the medicine itself uh, called rebound pain. Opiates actually do produce a phenomenon called opiate-induced hyperalgesia, which means uh, opiate-induced um, hypersensitivity to pain. So specifically with the opiates, there is a phenomenon that happens that's, that physiologically that is um, a little bit different than rebound, but is actually a uh, sensitization to, um, you know, your, your pain receptors kind of, uh, you start to experience pain um, in a different way when you use opiates chronically. Mm-hmm. So, there, so what you're talking about, Kristen, is, is that is a, is a true phenomenon specifically. You can get that with over-the-counter ibuprofen. If you take that every day, you can get a rebound headache um, or Tylenol <laughs> every day. But, but with the opiates, there is actually, you, you become more sensitive to pain that, that is unique to opiates. So that's the the, that the key yeah. is the sensitivity, yeah. more sensitivity to it. So what you maybe would have been able to handle without having ever taken opioids, now you can't because of that. Oh, my God. And, and you know, in, in, it sounds like semantics, but, you know, I think for some people probably dealing with, you know, um, addiction or um, opiate dependence is it sounds like semantics, but but there can be a difference for a lot of people. I, when I um, I have treated people or helped treat people with opiate dependence with a medicine called Suboxone, which is where we help people right. get off opiates. And you know there are people who you know they say the majority you know a lot of people that end up dependent on opiates started from a they had a chronic injury, and then they've been on these um, hydrocodone or Vicodin or. Yeah, um, opiates, and they've just been on them for years, and they can't stop because they go through a very painful withdrawal process that makes them feel like they're dying. It's not um, actually a medical emergency. You just feel awful um, for several days, and and usually you end up finding something. You you go to you extreme lengths to get some medication so that you can avoid those withdrawal symptoms. But there are people who never take more than what they're prescribed. But if they don't have if they don't have the medicine, they, they feel sick, like they need to go into the hospital. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, you're, it's kind of we're dealing with people who absolutely misuse the drugs. They start with opiate painkillers and then they move on to buying them on the street or buying heroin. Um, yes. All of those things. But there are people who, you know, have been on, you know, Vicodin for 10 plus years, same dose, and, and just end up on these medicines and, and they can't. They can't not take them, so, and, you know, so they feel. And I think doctors should uh, not use them unless they're absolutely the last resort. You know, I mean, you know, I'd probably be an extremist if I was a pain doctor. I'd probably only use it if somebody w- was within two months of dying of cancer or something. But but that's probably going too far. But, uh, there, you know, there are some uses for 
people that use it once in a while for a, a rare migraine or something. But if I feel sorry for anybody with chronic pain, whether it's from arthritis or whether it's from an injury or, or a, you know, a slip disc or whatever it's from, if you have pain every day, then you're going to get angry and you'd be yes. stupid if you, you'd be stupid if you didn't get angry. If I had pain right now, I'd be angry, you know, and I'd be an idiot if I didn't get angry. And, uh, and depression is called anger turned inward. So if you have pain every day, you're bound to get angry every day. And if you get angry every day, that depletes serotonin and makes you more depressed. And, mm. and that makes it even worse. And, you know, and then, and then uh, if you take a, a opioid pain medicine for your pain, then that, then that also lowers the serotonin and makes you even more depressed. So, so what, what uh, Grant and I do, if we have clients, which we have quite a few that come in with chronic pain, that there are psychiatric medications that will get rid of the pain or lessen it significantly. Like really? there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's three antidepressants that will, uh, that will do that. Uh, Pristique is one that will greatly decrease pain, but you may have to do double the normal dose. The normal dose is 50, so you may have to go up to 100. And Cymbalta, the normal dose is 60, but you may have to go up to 120. And, and it takes about a month for it to do it, but it'll, it'll get rid of a lot of pain or, or either eliminate it or decrease it a lot. And then uh, Grant taught me one. I asked him this week, I said, are there any other ones? And he said, yeah, Petzema. Is that right, Grant? Petzema? Yeah, that's, that's another one that does that. And then there's a, uh, we have, so that's, those are serotonin medications, medications. And then we have GABA in our brain. That's what puts the brakes on our worries. And uh, a lot of the GABA meds like Neurontin, uh, Oalyrica is one that, that helps pain. That's not addicting, but it, but it doesn't help anxiety a whole lot, but Neurontin and, and, uh, Lamictal, Neurontin, you can load somebody up and, and help them right away, uh, with anxiety and, their pain at the same time, and, and you don't have to wait a long time. Lamictal, I love, but it takes about a month or six weeks to get them on a normal dose. You, you got to climb up slow. But when they get to a, a good dose of that, that usually will eliminate not only anxiety and panic attacks, and it's the best medicine for bipolar, but uh, it, it also helps take away cravings for um, alcohol and illegal drugs, and, and it reduces pain significantly. They even use it. They use that in uh, Topamax and other GABA medicines to, to treat headaches and to treat pain, uh, mm -hmm. as well as we use them in psychiatry. So there's psychiatric meds that Grant and I will use that can help reduce the pain without them having to take all those uh, addicting pain medicines that are so bad for you. And I, I really feel like doctors, you know, I, most doctors are good guys that mean well. And there's probably some that mean well that give people too many of these, but I, I think some are just uh, drug pushers. You know, they're oh, just like yeah. a drug pusher out there on the street. Absolutely. So how, uh, here's something just, you know, from personal experience, and I know I've talked about my ex-husband and he has definitely has chronic pain. He won't take anything more than tramadol now uh, because he's afraid of, you know, getting addicted again. So, and, and he rightly has pain, multiple injuries from football and all kinds of things. So, but See, he would do great on those that, the ones that we just talked about. I know. And what's so funny is like Pristique is my, I love it. Like I, I, I will not live without my Pristique. It just, the world is a happier place because I take my Pristique. So, um, and Wellbutrin, two great things. But what's so funny is now he's not so much this way because of course, look at what I do and he's my closest friend. So he can't be this way. But for a long time, if you had said that to him. Well, why don't you take these medications? He would say, I'm not depressed. I don't need to take psych. Like the, a stigma, a stigma around it. Like that would say something about him. And I used to say, yeah, but you're addicted to opioids. So why is that okay? And saying that you might take a mental health medication and somehow yeah. you've got these standards. <laughs> I, hear that a lot. I hear that a lot with weed. A lot of that with marijuana. Yeah. Okay, smoking marijuana for depression and anxiety, but, but the thought of taking a an antidepressant is just uh, just ridiculous. So how do you how do you all get around that? Because I same thing marijuana too. I've heard that too, and I think oh, okay. Um. <laughs> well, some people are willing to come in and say, Doctor Meyer, I came to see you because I'm depressed, and can you help me? And then there's other people that say, Doctor Meyer, I have all these symptoms 
but I know I'm not depressed. You know, I, I would never be depressed, uh, you know, but I, I uh, you know, feel like crying all the time and I wish God would let me die. And I wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep. And, you know, and then they go on with all the symptoms and, and, they, and they say, but it's just my fibromyalgia, you know, or, uh, or, or it's my chronic fatigue syndrome. And some people do have those things, but probably nine out of 10 people that think they do uh, don't. And, and it's, a, it's a way to save face and uh, not, not have to admit that they're going through depression. Now, and that, I'm not, I, I don't want to tick off the people that are listening to me right now because <laughs> maybe it's not nine out of 10. Maybe it's half and half because a lot of people really do have those things. But, but uh, I tell them, well, you know what? Even if you're not depressed, if you're having uh, chronic pain and these things, these things uh, help chronic pain, then it's sure not going to hurt you. So, you know, we use these to treat fibromyalgia and these other things that you're talking about too. So if that's what you do have, hmm. then, uh, then it's going to help you. And so I, I talk them into taking it and then when they feel better, I don't care if they call it depression or not, you know, if I can right. make their it's lives happier and yeah, exactly. But the symptoms, so you know, what was odd in this article? Uh, like I said, I read an article that summarized 54 research articles on op opioid addiction. And they said, and I, they said, now here's the main symptoms of somebody. If you want to know who's abusing op opioids, Here's the main symptoms to look for. And I was, I was shocked when I read these. Depression, social isolation, irritability, mood swings, agitation, financial difficulties, and lying. Oh, my God. Those are all. <laughs> They're all symptoms of, of, uh, of depression. Yes. You know? Oh, my gosh. And so it's Great. either depression. It's either depression causing them to use opioids to kill the pain or it's the opioids causing them to be depressed. And I think it's probably 50, 50. They yeah. contribute to each other. Grant, what do you say to, to people that have that argument? Well, usually if they're in my office, things are not going well in their life. So I try to highlight how, what they're, what they're doing, what they're using is not really working and try to offer them a different solution. Um, usually you're not in my office or Dr. Meyer's office or in Melanie's office for counseling if, if things in life are going fantastic. So when someone right. comes in and says, oh, my anxiety is a 10 out of 10, I'm, I'm horribly depressed, hobbies are not enjoyable, uh, but I smoke, you know, weed multiple times a day or right. I, you know, I'm, I'm drinking, you know, six plus drinks, um, you know, to, to self-medicate. And trying, you know, it's like, well, let's let's try one of these medicines. And if you get any pushback, we, well, clearly what you're doing is not working. Right. So here, here's an here's an alternative to that. Here's something that we know is FDA approved. They've done clinical research on help symptoms. Um, I try to show them the research that shows that marijuana is a central nervous system depressant. That it's going to make depression worse. It's actually going to cause a rebound anxiety when you stop smoking marijuana, and so that's oh, likely yeah. to continue to smoke more and more and more. Um, is so that you you're continually, you know, you're you're taking marijuana for anxiety, but then when the cannabinoids and the THC start to leave the receptors, that's part of its withdrawal process as a rebound anxiety. So you smoke again, wow. and so you're you know you're you're creating creating the problems too. And just try to, you know, try to highlight the, that you're here for a reason and try to present the evidence to them and say, hey, we'll try this out and, and let's see if it works and see if you don't feel better. Yeah, it's that it's that that thing that's still there, that stigma around medication. I mean, I've had people argue with me who have done just that, who've ha gone into a full-blown panic attack where they're driving themselves to emergency rooms thinking that they're dying they're smoking so much marijuana that they it's it's unreal how much they're able their lungs are able to ugh it's unreal and then they start having these anxiety attacks and panic attacks and they'll go see someone like you or Paul and they will you know get a prescription for an antidepressant of some kind and then it'll make them feel kind of funny for a few days or whatever they think it is. And then they'll stop d taking it. They won't let it mm -hmm. run the full course and get it mm -hmm. adjusted and keep doing whatever. They'll go back to the marijuana. And I think yeah. you're just, this is, this is, a, this is a loop that you're in and you're, it's not, it's going nowhere good. Yes. And, and of course they feel good. I mean, when you're high, you, you feel good. 
and yeah. and that's why they people want to continue to to use marijuana uh, to to get that high. But you know, the more you have to do to get there. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think with the is marijuana starts to become legalized in a lot of different states. I think that the well, the research has shown that the perception of risk with marijuana is is drastically declining. Um, you know, I think yes, that they definitely went overboard. What was it in the 70s, 80s with reefer madness? I think that was an overreaction. But now I think there's an underreaction to this is not um, just a drug that is without risk or danger. I know that I've treated people in a psych hospital that you can turn you can turn the genes on for schizophrenia through marijuana. Uh, you can get a, right. a cannabis induced psychosis that doesn't go away. It causes brain damage. It can cause permanent yeah, brain damage. Absolutely. I show them pictures from the Amen Clinic. If uh, people are listening to us right now, you can go yeah. to Daniel Amen, A-M-E-N, like Amen, like, you know, but the AmenClinic.com, and yeah. it's got pictures of uh, what happens with opioids to the brain, what happens with cigarettes, what happens with uh, alcohol, what happens with uh, different uh, yeah. drugs, pot. Cocaine and yeah. Yeah. Uh, let, let, me, let me read something from... Uh, that summary article, um, it says uh, sustained remission from opioids occurs in a significant minority of individuals, but it usually takes 10 or more years to emerge. And many survivors have medical and psychosocial problems that permanently impair their health, chances for employment and overall adjustment. So it's, it's pretty, pretty glim even for those who get treatment. The, the most effective treatments are therapeutic communities where they get in residential treatment centers that use a lot of group therapy and AA type meetings and things like that. And in, in fact, I, I was glad to see that these medical doctors, you know, <laughs> very few psychiatrists are, are inclined toward religious beliefs, you know, but they said that the most effective outcomes from all their research were places like Hazelden and Karen Foundation and places like that, where they have 12 step groups. Where they right. they come for a long time, and they have uh, twelve step groups, and uh, a couple of a psychologist um, and uh, and a pastor and myself wrote a book uh, recently about a year and a half ago uh, that um, that has to do with addictions and it's called Be Strong and Surrender. I don't think I've ever mentioned it before on the radio. Yet, but yet be another strong. Paul book. <laughs> <laughs> it's one more book, you know. But be be strong and surrender. And it goes into the 12 steps and, and gives a lot of uh, advice and stories and things like that. So I'd, I'd recommend it to people that are trying to overcome things. But the uh, two things drive most addiction, shame and lack of connectedness. So shame is where you, you just don't like yourself, you know, you, for a variety of reasons. And, and then uh, lack of connectedness means not having people that you sh can share your gut level feelings with. And the 12 steps, um, let me read them real quick. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, but that's, that applies to heroin or other addictions too, and that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, we came to believe that a, a power greater than ourselves, which is God, could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Because when you talk about the things that you've done wrong, then it's easier to forgive yourself when you have a good cry and talk about it. Yep. Six, we were uh, entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. Seven, we humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. Eight, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and be became willing to make amends to them all. And nine, we made direct amends to such people where possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. You don't want to go, you know, uh, do something where you'd hurt a whole family or something like that. And 10, uh, we continued to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious conduct with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will uh, for us and the power to carry that out. And number 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other addicts, 
to other heroin addicts, to other alcoholics, and to mm -hmm. practice these principles in all our affairs. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. So groups, people that get treated not only with uh, medications to help them withdraw, which I'd, I'd like uh, Grant to tell us about some of those. Yes. But, uh, but people that get that, they said people that get that to help them withdraw, but also get long-term uh, therapy that includes the 12-step our programs have the best results. And, and I was really glad to see that, that the research backed that up. Yeah, that is wonderful. And Melanie, I want to ask you, because I know we've all been chatting, but you have, you know, the firsthand experience with addiction as well uh, with family members and friends and so on. So what does this say to you? Um, you know, I've got so many thoughts going through my mind. We're talking about opioids and, you know, I, I immediately think about why does someone start taking these things in the first place? And you guys had mentioned probably right around before I joined that a lot of times they, they are, you know, major injuries um, or, or some, some other problem. And somehow this um, addiction cycle gets started. But I, but I also want to point out um because I, I know someone really well who runs a sickle cell clinic and Dr. Meyer um, and Grant will know that there's tons and tons and tons of main medic pain medication that goes through these clinics. And just just this one thing, for example, what was expressed to me was, um, you know, people people come in and they're given these drugs. They're not the, all there's all that's said to them is this can be addictive be careful <laughs> and then they yeah. come back in there's there's just no follow-up there's no you know these people need to be doing their needs educated to be, they need to be educated they need to be going to groups for pain management these are people that are going to be in chronic pain the rest of their lives if our audience doesn't know what sickle cell is it is a disease that often that almost always comes with severe chronic pain so these people need to be you know in groups they need to be encouraged to maybe do yoga, to do other types of things, to have access to support um, that that is is outside of it. And and what ends up happening in these types of clinics that's been shared with me is that most of the time, one of the first things they do when they come in is they're tested to see if the amount um, of medication that they're taking is actually in their blood. Half the time it isn't because they're selling it for some other drug, heroin or, or preferably marijuana most of the time because most of the patients say that marijuana helps them in a way that this medication they've been taking for 10 years because they're in chronic pain constantly just doesn't touch it anymore. Um, and, and so these doctors are in this, you know, what do we do? Do we're, They're not supposed to give it to them when they're not testing with the right amount in their blood. And so it just, to it, it just seems chaotic and it seems careless uh, a lot. And I think this, yes, when you're talking about addiction, you are talking about something that is based on on shame and, and an inability to self-regulate. And so we need to teach people how to self-regulate. You know, these need to be things that we talk about every day in school, yes. in our in our lives every day. How do you do these things? How do you how do you manage emotions? You know, how does someone that may be like a highly sensitive person learn how to manage things that they don't. How do we recognize depression so that when we are depressed, we're not looking for something to quickly make us feel better. 
So I feel like it's just this huge systemic problem. But even though saying this, what are we really going to do about it? Um, and 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 the question is, you know, it's it's hard to say. I think a, a lot of people like Paul is going to be um, doing something with the opioid epidemic soon. And I guess it's just educating people. But I, I really feel like with opioids in particular, there's just this carelessness that that happens with these drugs that are so highly, highly addictive. And there's no coaching except, uh, you know, as you taper off one a day and the, and the person's sent home, there's no, there, there's no nothing. I mean, these are, these are major drugs you're putting into the hand of a layman. Um, and I just think it's really irresponsible. But then the other side of it could be, well, some people would take these drugs and never pick it up again. And so I guess it just boils down to the genes, like Paul talks about sometimes, right. um, and whether this thing is triggered when they start taking these types of medications. I've been given these types of drugs. I used to have really bad migraines when I was younger. I can't take them. I, I hate the way they make me feel. They literally make me sleep for 20 hours straight. I just can't take them, and I have no desire to take them whatsoever. But my mom had an injury recently, and she was given the same types of medication that I was given when I used to get migraine. And she was like, oh, yeah, I see how those people, you know, people can get addicted to those. She's like, I really like the way they make me feel. You know, she's 74. Yeah. and Of course, she's not addicted to opioids, but she really liked how it made her feel. Yeah, so it makes I, a, I, it makes a difference in in people. Uh, yeah. I've been given uh, I've been given those kinds of uh, pain meds before. Like if I get a tooth pulled, my yeah. dentist would give me just a few, you know. And yeah. when I take it, it doesn't do anything for me at all, except it does relieve the pain. Um, yeah. but, but but that's all it does. But but uh, I have clients who say, you know, that when they take it, man, they they have euphoria. You know, yeah. so oh, sometimes I do. a genetic predisposition can make a difference. I absolutely do. I get that euphoria too. It's like someone uh, hooked me up to nitrous oxide. It's amazing. And I don't take it because I, it also, I also get very sick. Like I get sick to my stomach. Thank goodness, because I get that euphoria as well. And it also is like hide any sort of gadget that would allow me to communicate with the outside world because I will tell people things that I should not be talking about. You know what I'm saying? A true serum. True serum for you, Kristen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. You want me to tell you something I don't want, I, although I share pretty much everything on the show, but want me to share other things that you don't want to know about, like Wonder Woman's lasso, you know, of truth. Um, hand me a Vicodin. Is I cannot do that. But I want to, I want us to get to, you know, what you were talking about, Paul and Grant about how, how yeah. do people that have been taking it dose down? I know that psychiatric medication can help, but what are, what are these other medications that can help people get off of opioids? Yeah. Cause Grant actually treated it. So Grant, how did, how did you treat it? We, we don't treat yeah. it in our so, clinics because so we don't we, do hospitalization, we, but what do you do? Yeah. We used um, Suboxone which is a, um, is a combination of a drug called buprenorphine and then a drug called naloxone. Um, what it does is it, it prevents someone from going into opiate withdrawal, um, and it's a prescription drug. So if they're, if they're buying their, um, you know, if they're buying heroin on the street, you know, now we, we're, we're giving them a drug that they don't have to get illegally and they'll have a prescription for it. So you automatically can improve some functioning there and some safety and some, some various things. But the way Suboxone works is as a the type of drug that it, it will, um, there's evidence that it undoes the opiate-induced hyperalgesia that opiates can cause, and it does not cause a depressing effect. Mm -hmm. So... These patients, the patients who either are just dependent and so they, they take what they're prescribed, they don't misuse it, they're not trying to get a high, but they've been on these opiates for years, decades, and they can't get off. Or patients who are um, just sick of, you know, the addiction always starts with you're chasing this high and eventually yes. it, it becomes maladaptive and you're you're no longer chasing a high, you're you're just staving off withdrawal symptoms. And so, so you that helps them get heroin. off, right? Yeah, that, so that it, yeah, it helps you to get and, off. And, and, and Grant, do they, they don't get high on that drug, do they? In in theory, no. Um, I would. Oh. I have had addicts tell me otherwise. Yeah. But in theory, no. The reason they put naloxone naloxone is a is a very strong opiate um, antagonist, 
um, it, cre it prevents them from crushing the drug up and injecting it. If they were mm. to do that, they would immediately go into withdrawal symptoms. Interesting. Um, because it would override every uh, opiate that's attached to the receptor. It would just knock it off. What's, um, what's the drug? What's the drug that they used to use that that can cause a high? Was that methadone or? Yes, methadone. Um, methadone. And that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing to use, uh, right? I don't. I think you're you're. You know, there are some thoughts out there. Hey, you're 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 replacing your heroin um, addiction dependence onto a suboxone dependence, and and there is some truth to that, but. You know, a lot of times the goal is to potentially get someone off of Suboxone, and it can be easier to do. Um, but, but yeah, you can get high off of methadone. Methadone. In, in, in Switzerland and some of the countries in the European Union, according to that research article, they use heroin. I mean, they'll, they'll, if people are trying to get off heroin, they actually inject them with, with heroin. heroin. And, uh, you know, that's methadone. not too, doesn't yeah. seem like too smart a thing to do. Yeah, what's the what's the the intelligence or, or reporting behind that? Well, they they think and 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 I mean it has worked on some, but they they think if if they comply, then we'll give them a little bit less each each yeah. uh, week, ah. you know, and so we'll wean them off it. But often what they do is they just that's just one more place to get some, you know. And you know what's what's interesting? Then we've we've heard this from our first responder shows, like Rescue the Rescuer, and we have a doctor, um, Mark Leeds, who does a show called The Rehab, who talks about Suboxone medication and things like that. Um, he's helping people, you know, get off of these, um, get off of opioids. And what what we hear so much about is that it used to be especially with first responders, and this is what we hear from actual first responders, okay, that they used to get phone calls and they'd know by the city that was calling in, you know, with the issue for them to be a first responder of, they could say, okay, we need to gear up, we need to put on extra protection, we need to blah, 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 because this we're going to that bad area of town. And with the opioid crisis, everywhere, is a bad area of town now. They don't even go, oh, okay, well, this is going to be in, you know, the um, whatever golden city of whatever in California that we won't have any issues there. There, There is no good area of town when it comes to the opioid crisis anymore. Yeah. And people will do things when they're addicted that they would normally never do. Yeah. They'll steal, they'll, you know, somebody addicted to heroin would, sometimes, you know, kill their grandmother for a fix, you know, if they're desperate enough. Yeah. One, one other thing, one other thing, uh, you know, um, I think it was Melanie that, that asked, you know, or maybe it was Chris and I forgot which one of you asked that, but what are some things that we can do to help our kids be less likely to get on it? And uh, some of the studies showed that, you know, most kids are going to experiment somewhat with drugs when they're in high school, late teens and early twenties usually. And, uh, but only 25% will get hooked on them. And it's usually the ones that are overly dependent that are more likely to get hooked on drugs. So the more independent a child is, uh, when they grow up, then the less likely it is that they would want to depend on a drug to, to numb themselves out the rest of their lives. And, and, uh, that can involve a lot of different things in our in our lives and even in politics. I mean, if, if there's a people that are hungry, some well-intentioned people say, well, let's give them all fish to eat, you know, and because they're hungry and, uh, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that. But then there's others that say, well, if they're really hungry, let's give them fishing poles and teach them how to fish so they can, you know, uh, take care of their own families. And, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of both might be, uh, I'm not saying one side is, you know, better than the other, but, but uh, teaching people to be independent and take care of themselves is, is really uh, valuable in, in young kids, too. If uh, parents think too much for their children when they're growing up, that's not good for the kids. Uh, yes. don't, tell them, don't tell them what to wear and, and what to do every minute of every day. And, you know, give them a little rope and, and uh, let them individuate. And, you, you know, don't make your son be a football player if they like uh playing the piano, you know, and, uh, right. uh, you, you got to give them a little freedom The the kids that are totally compliant and get straight A's are the ones that are the most likely to, to commit suicide. 
And uh, kids that rebel a little bit when they're growing up are, are actually healthier, you know. So. I know. You know, this is, <laughs> this is a fascinating subject, too. And, and it does, I promise, listeners, this does, this is hand in hand with addiction. It really is. It is. There, what I find interesting, and I talked about this with, with my ex-husband, how we were very much scapegoated in our families. We were the, the, the scapegoated kids and the what that did for us is it made us extremely independent we had to become extremely reliant on ourselves for <laughs> all kinds of things and we failed a lot because we were like well nobody cares anyway or we're always bad anyway so we might as well just try a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> and, yeah. and fail at it and see what happens and what that did is built resiliency. And yeah. so now that we're older, all of the people that supposedly did everything the right way with their life, not all of them, but many of them are now come to us and say, I'm having this midlife crisis. I don't know what to do. I can't like they, they don't even have the capability um, to handle stuff that we handled 20 years ago. <laughs> Yeah. And they're the same age that we are. And now all of a sudden we're these wise sages that, you know, have have the answers. And we look at each other like, <laughs> OK, I mean, we don't have all the answers, but but it, it's just really interesting to to have what you're saying, Paul, where we 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 weren't coddled like other people in our family yeah. was. And it, and we did make a lot of mistakes and there were years where people were just shame doing the shame finger about us. And now, and now all of a sudden we're these wonderful people that have, that are a success. And I just think, gosh, you know, over the history of someone's life, that's the great thing about age that you can look back and go, Oh, all those things happened. And okay, a good product turned out. Yeah. A, a, a dependent person will say, I'm broke. Who's going to give me money? Yes. Uh, they'll say, I'm lonely. Why doesn't anybody call me up? Uh, I've got this problem. Why doesn't somebody come and rescue me for that problem? Yes. And an independent person will say, I'm lonely. Who should I call? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, behind in my bills. What can I do extra, a part-time extra job or something until I get caught up? And they, they take care of themselves in uh, a huge, huge study done on hundreds of thousands of people showed that people who are dependent, uh, a majority of them suffer from depression. And uh, the people that are independent, a majority of them enjoy life and are not depressed. And uh, so it's, and, and the same thing with addictions, the dependent people are more likely to get dependent on drugs. It's not, you know, it's not always that way. Yeah. Uh, but. Interesting. That's common. really interesting. Grant, what are you thinking about all this and my little windy road? I took us on I, for a minute. <laughs> Tell you, I think that it is. Um, I think it's very. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think you're spot on with it. Um, we have a, a, a therapist who uh, at the day program who loves to kind of rant on millennials, if you will, and I think they can be the brunt of a lot of jokes. But I think that there is a, a resiliency that that I think that past generations definitely grew up with a little bit more than, than I think we do now. Um, and, I, and I think that, that all of these things are. You know, it's not just one thing that causes, you know, any any type of disorder, right. function, or addiction, but I definitely think it contributes um, with genes and, um, you know, the genetic predisposition. And, you know, I, I have not treated one person, not with opiate dependence, but a person with true addiction that did not have some other co-occurring mental illness. Yes. Um, and, and largely um, trauma. Um, usually there's some sort of, and not everybody that becomes an addict is, a victim of abuse, but, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, working in rehabs and different things like that, that was a large portion of almost everyone's story was, um, was, you know, they became addicted. They started to use drugs to escape, um, because of, because of, uh, of usually sexual abuse, but, but mm -hmm. some sort of, some sort of a trauma and then they turned to drugs to cope. And, um, so, you know, that's a, just a multifaceted disease process that is, um, requires an, a, a treatment team approach of a, with your a therapist, support groups, um, medication to treat the underlying psychiatric condition if needed, drugs to help 
prevent alcohol cravings or to prevent, you know, being able to get high on drugs, any, any mechanism you can to, to make it harder for someone to abuse the drug um, with all those other support systems, I think, are the, you're going to have your best chances of success. So yeah, kids that are kids, kids that are uh, that are abused when they're growing up blame themselves. They think yes. it's my fault. I'm I'm a, a horrible child, or they went my parents wouldn't be abusing me, or yeah. whoever is abusing them, and so they have low self-esteem, and so they get more depressed, and and so they numb it out. And in therapy, they figure out that their parents were lying to them. You know, they don't need to go through life beating themselves up, and, and they can kick their parents out of their brain. I love I love that you say that. That's helped me. This is every Monday night therapy for me when you you know. <laughs> but yeah, that that you don't need to carry your your parents' voice around. Some well-meaning and some not. Um, but if you have generational trauma and it, it's you know this has been going on for decades, centuries maybe even in your family, and it just kept you know keeps getting handed down. Um, you can. You can be angry at what's happened to you, and then you can do something about it. You don't have to stay in that in that mix, and you don't have to keep having those voices in your head telling you who you are. You can become who you who you were meant to be. Mm-hmm. Right. That's my self help talk for the night. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people um, still try to they still try to live up to what their parents wanted them to be, rather than becoming what they want to be, and and I, I often tell them, uh, well, do you need my mother's approval? And they say, well, no, I don't need your mother's approval. I said, well, <laughs> do I need your mother's approval or father's? And they say, well, no. And I said, then then there's 8 billion people out there, and your mom's just one of them. Do you need her approval? I said, well, uh, actually, I guess not, you know. <laughs> I say, you know, yeah, you can live your life without it, you know. And and uh, if she happens to change someday and accept you the way you are, that's uh that's nice, but if you count on it, you're going to stay depressed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to talk to a little bit, you know, maybe we can focus on this for the last piece of the show. How, you know, it's, there's also, there's the addict that's, you know, abusing substances or substance use disorders is now what it's called. Um, I like that they're taking that word abuse out of it, but because that does add a more shame. But then there are people that are enabling the addiction and that is just as, much a part of the addiction as taking the drugs. So winding your way out of being an enabler, which I absolutely was, um, and um, also not allowing yourself to be enabled, which is boundaries. That's a rough road. It's it's. I always look at it like it's like you're cleaning your uh, film off of your glasses, and you keep cleaning and you keep cleaning by working on your trauma, like you guys do, you know, with your day program. And then people all of a sudden have a clear perspective of of what's gone on in their life that got them to this place. Um, but that that enabling piece, I don't think it's focused on enough because it's always all about the addict and um, and you know the addict doesn't get there by themselves. Well, that, that's an addiction too. And uh, like if uh, let's say a, a, a young girl grows up with an alcoholic father, there's a pretty good chance that she's going to marry an alcoholic, uh, partially to to get the love that she didn't get from her father, partially to fix her childhood. There's a variety of reasons why we tend to do that. And uh, and then if the uh, husband um, gets treatment and overcomes his alcoholism, then 50% of the time, uh, the the woman who really wanted her husband not to be an alcoholic consciously will divorce him and marry another alcoholic. Right. And I, I had a patient that I called the church lady, you know, that that's a true story. She'd go to, her husband was an alcoholic. He wouldn't work. Uh, he, you know, he was always drunk and, and, and he'd uh, hit her and, and beat her up sometimes. And, and, uh, she'd, she'd work and, and support the family and give him her money, let him buy alcohol with it. She'd go to prayer meeting every Wednesday night and, and say, Oh, pray for my alcoholic husband. And she'd come with bruises and her arm in a sling one time. And, Oh, you know, uh, you know, she, she was the suffering saint, you know, and oh, finally yeah. her. Finally, her pastor got tired of it, and he said, "I'm going to go have a good talk with your husband." And he went and had a, you know, real strong man-to-man talk with him. And the husband uh, repented and got help and got counseling, and and 
within three years, the husband, uh, he started his own business and become real successful and was a deacon in the church and was, you know, just a, a really great husband and a good father. And the, the wife was real depressed and suicidal. And she didn't know why, but she was depressed and suicidal because, see, you, you know, she was dependent on him being an alcoholic. And yes. uh, so when she came into our day program, uh, we admitted a alcoholic uh, in the in the program that wanted to overcome that. And, and uh, she she tried to end up having an affair with him. And she had <laughs> she's not the type that would do that. But she, you know, she really wanted to divorce her husband and, and marry another alcoholic. But she became aware of her codependency. That, that's what we call it codependency and and uh, and she worked through it and, and uh, got healthy and happy eventually but it took yeah some I've had somebody um, that, that got married to someone with a lot of a lot of problems very severe history of, of problems and still obviously active in all of their issues and they actually um, would say before they married this person well I'll just as I help them, fix their problems then I'll heal and I thought oh my god that is a marriage steeped in disaster just yeah. right there yep. sounds like so. a recipe for disaster for sure <laughs> yes absolutely yeah. and you can't you're right you can't well Melanie you have your thoughts on that would you <laughs> <laughs> um, well I mean codependency and whoever is uh, an addict support system really is essential to recovery. There just there has to be education amongst the entire support system and not just the addict. If you're if you're you know treating the addict like if I was treating the addict as a counselor and then I know they're going into the same dysfunctional family system every single time they leave my office, then quite frankly that can leave me feeling really hopeless. So I would always try to get the other members of the families to get in their own counseling and educate themselves about whatever the addiction was um, that the client was dealing with. So it it is it's imperative that the addict support system understand what their role is in recovery because it's huge. And you know, just like Paul was saying, so you know, codependent is a word that we throw around a lot, but in reality it is exactly what it is. So if a person is dependent on alcohol, then the person that is the codependent is someone that is dependent on it as well. And so in psychological terms or in counseling terms, when we talk about a codependent, we're basically talking about someone whose emotions or decisions are always dependent on someone else's reaction. So they are codependent. Mm. So you can see how this dynamic works between uh, the addict and, and whoever this support system is. So. When it's Grant it's and I, definitely, yeah, it's a family disease. It, it yeah. definitely is. Yeah. When, when, when Grant and I encourage people uh, that are alcoholics, for example, to go to AA meetings, we also encourage their mate to, to go to meetings of their own. They have mm -hmm. uh, meetings that they can go to to learn how not to be codependent. That's right. Al-Anon, right? Yeah. 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 Yep. Or not, or there's um narconon narconon yeah. yep there's all sorts and codependence anonymous yeah Codep i've been i've been to those meetings i just didn't i i could not tolerate holding my hand up and saying i'm codependent mm -hmm. my name is kristen every time i had to go to the bathroom because i thought listen i don't want to continue to reinforce to my brain that this is what it, i am <laughs> you know i, I want to say one more thing before we run out of time that, that i just thought of that's real important for those of for those of you listening uh, right now uh, who are alcoholics, uh, I mean, we, we, you know, if they show, if if you don't have a, a proneness toward alcoholism and you had a glass of wine every day, you'd probably live longer. I'm not saying alcohol uh, in moderation is bad, but but people that uh, uh, drink more than two glasses of wine a night are are going to have problems, but. For people that are drinking a lot, like a fifth of whiskey a night or a whole bottle of wine a night or more, um, I'd encourage, we, Grant and I would encourage you to get treatment, but don't just go cold turkey. I mean, be, you know, be sure you go to a hospital or a treatment center to get treated, get on medications that'll help you not to with, have withdrawal seizures and things. Because uh, if you go into 
what's called DTs, delirium tremens, then uh, some people who are drinking a, a whole lot and they quit, uh, they'll start uh, seeing bugs coming off the wall and crawling on them and, and they'll have hallucinations and things like that. And tre a tremor. And, yeah. And, and if they're not in a hospital, there's a 50% death rate from their brain swelling. If they're in a hospital, there's still about a 10% death rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's, it's really dangerous to just, uh, uh, you know, be drinking a ton of alcohol and quit cold turkey. Now, Grant, you were telling me earlier that people can quit heroin, right? They just get sick. They don't die. Don't people can die from quitting alcohol? Yes, people can die from quitting alcohol, benzodiazepines, and barbiturates. Mm. The three uh, medications that um, can be can be deadly in in withdrawal, and it doesn't mean that everybody will, will you know, have to depends on dose and how long you've been on things. But but heroin withdrawal, it feels like you're going to die, but but it is not a not a medical emergency. It is not a um, not a life threatening withdrawal yeah. process. Yeah, feel awful, but um, it, it will not kill you. No. Um, so la very... last, go ahead. I'm sorry, Grant. Oh, I just said it, it will just make you very, very, very sick. Okay. Last question that is for Paul and for Grant. So how is it with, because Paul gets, Paul in, in our experiences, such a cheerleader for other people. So when he asked about you coming on the show, Grant, I, I thought, oh, my gosh, Paul is going to be so excited about this. So how is it with the two of you working together? Because, Paul, you're such a great collaborator. <laughs> you know, so I'm, supposed to be, I'm supposed to be Grant's uh, supervisor, you know, because <laughs> I'm the MD and he's the nurse practitioner. But, Grant, how many times a week do I come by your office? And Sometimes I'll interrupt Grant when he's even with a client. Say, hey, what do you do for this? What do you do for that? Grant is just a, he's a brilliant guy. He's a humble guy. So he doesn't want me to brag on him, but he's, he's really brilliant and he's up on everything. And, yeah, uh, just like earlier this week, I said, what other antidepressants relieve pain? You know, I knew you'd know one and, uh, he's, he's just a real smart guy. And I, and I, he might ask me a question once every six months and I ask him about two or three a week. So <laughs> he, he teaches me. It, it is definitely it is definitely fun at Meyer Clinic. I can tell you that. Yeah, we I love working together. A whole heck of a lot from Dr. Meyer. That is for sure. Well, that's the thing I wanted the listeners to hear was that dynamic because this is what we get from being with you every week, Paul. That yeah. humility that just is innate within you. You just you you have so much and you freely give out of your abundance to other people. And it's a beautiful well, thing to get to be around. I love doing what I do. Yeah. I plan to keep doing it till I'm in my 90s or until I'm too senile to know my name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. They're, they're going to be kicking you out at Meyer. That's what's going to happen. You're going to come yeah. in so old and feeble, Paul and Grant. It's going to be giving you little hints. And that's what's going to happen. And everyone respects yeah. you so much. They're going to be like, oh, just let him come in. Just just let him pretend yeah. to practice. And I already told my nurse, my nurse happen. has been, my nurse has been with me for about 18 years and I already told her, but she's younger than me, you know, and I said, I, and I told, I already told her when I get seen now, you're going to have to sit in on every session that I have with a patient. And I'll say, well, what, what, what do you think? I'll say, Lynn, what do you think we ought to do? And whatever you say, we'll do it. You know? <laughs> Well, thank you both for coming on. This is a serious subject. I'm glad that we could take, you know, a, a different take on it than what's out there in the news, which is very real, but it's also, and, and I think it's getting across to people finally, but I think Melanie hit the nail on the head with, you know, let's get education in the hands of people sooner and also people that are prescribed pain medication there needs to be a protocol that goes along and that they're required to uh, to be a part of this protocol in order to keep getting the medication. So that education from early on and also as you take it is something that, you know, needs to, needs to start happening more. Otherwise, I don't know how this is going to end up for us. Yeah. yeah, you have a choice. You can either take the addicting meds that make you more depressed and make you more dependent and will end up killing you. Or you can take antidepressants and, and other psychiatric meds that, and not all of them heal pain, but some of them do. And you can take 
psychiatric meds that heal the pain that are not addicting that that make you happy so you don't want to numb the pain you know so you have a choice and, and make the right choice Absolutely. That's the thing. We always say you have a choice. You have a choice not to um, hear your parents' voices in your head yeah. <laughs> running your life. And you have a choice yeah. to choose what medication that you will put into your body. So right. you're the patient. You're the consumer. It's your choice. Right. So thank you, Dr. Meyer Paul, for coming on mm-hmm. for another show. Mm-hmm. And Grant, thank you for joining us, too. That's two now in a row. That's right. I enjoy it. Thank you all so much. For we're going to do we're going to do one more on uh, uh, antidepressants and when to use them, when not to use them and which ones are the best and things like that. So we'll have Can't Grant one more one. time. Yep. All right. And I want to say thank you to Lee Beat and the Beat family listening from Birmingham in the UK. Thank you so much for tuning in and for um, letting us know that you listen to all of our shows. We love that. And I want to say thank you to the rest of our listeners for another edition of Mental Health News Radio. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.